Thank you for joining us today. My name is Maccabee Griffin. And I'm Marcella. And this is Beyond the Pen, where we take the well-known adage, read between the lines to a whole new level and beyond. Each week we sit down with a new author to not only discuss one of their books, but also learn the story behind the story. Hello, everyone. I'm going to be solo today because Marcella had some family emergency go after again. But you know what? We're going to stand by our supporter, keep her in our thoughts and prayers, and just keep moving forward as usual. So today, our guest is a time traveler from the 90s who loves Chicago Cubs and is a walking rock log of historic rock and roll trivia and information or at least according to his latest time-traveling fantasy novel called 90 Days in the 90s. And he does this in a way that makes you look back and rediscover all the tremendous nostalgia in your life, just like his protagonist, Darby, does. But anyways, I will digress, and we'll just hit right into it. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I give you the gray liner himself, Andy Fry. Andy, welcome to the show. Mac, thanks for having me on. It's good to hang out with you on a Thursday. Oh, you know what? It's always going to be fun. I appreciate you coming on here because, you know, one of the things that I was really interested in your book is, one, just because I'm 42 and I lived the 90s, and it's always nice to go back to that nostalgia sometimes. And having that idea of, like, what would you do if you could go back into the 90s and just do what you wanted to do would you be like one of your characters dale who just wants to watch all these great baseball games all the way back to 1947 or would you like to be like someone who just wants to go back to the music or someone who actually decides to change little things in their life and that's something i thought was really cool but we'll talk about that here in a bit but right now Go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners. And most importantly, tell us something about you that we can't find on the internet. Well, I don't know. You know, I, I something can't find out about me. This, well, probably you might find out that I, I'm a late bloomer is maybe a, a, a term. I've not been professionally writing forever. I didn't go to journalism school. I actually used to work in a cubicle like a lot of people and I had a good career. I sort of developed some habits that helped me as a writer. But yeah, I mean, I used to be a working stiff like anybody, you know, still, I'm not a staffer at Forbes. I, I write on a freelance basis, but I get to interview athletes and talk about their business ventures and sometimes just their sports. And I've gotten to interview great people like Billie Jean King and Jenny Finch about two weeks ago. I made this little shtick for a while, mostly with ESPN, but a little bit after that, just interviewing aging rock stars and talking sports with them. And that was super fun. You know, here's the great thing about this is that you've taken these life experiences and you've been able to bring them into your book, which is really cool because a lot of these aging rock stars have amazing stories to tell. And there's a lot of times where, honestly, I really believe that if they start putting books out, that people are going to pick them up left and right because it is it's i don't know maybe more for nostalgia than anything but other than that it is the idea that we want to know as much about 
these great stories that people have experienced. And you've done that in a way that is something that people can really truly connect with. And when we start to meet the protagonist, Darby, she's dealing with a lot, which has strained her mental health. She went from having everything, you know, a career on Wall Street, a socialite fiance, and the wealth and power that comes with it. And then everything changes. Mm-hmm. And she makes a bad deal and loses her career and her wealth. You know, her fiance leaves her. And then to top it all off, she loses a family member who she was yeah. very close to. Yeah. And now, as I said before, this threw her for a loop. And instead of this driven woman who worked her entire career to have it all, we're seeing someone dealing with imposter syndrome. Who believes that she is stupid, she's broken, she's a little inauthentic. So my question is, what made her begin to believe she was an imposter? Well, it's interesting because I just kind of dropped in lightly. Uh, I didn't even say imposter syndrome, but I was thinking about it that, you know, one of the things is that, yeah, so she's high flying on Wall Street. I'm, you know, I'm a little bit of a crypto skeptic, or at least I don't jump on bandwagon things very often. So I just thought it was kind of timely that, you know, if, if someone's going to kind of you know, fail on Wall Street, they might do it through trade. I always wanted the, the story. I, I mean, I fell in love with the idea when I came up with it of time travel back to the 90s, seeing shows and just kind of hanging out like they do in one of my favorite movies, Days Confused. So I, I guess the roundabout way back to your question is she felt like a little imposter inheriting this record store that her, her uncle Martin founded. The main thing is she feels bad that she lost touch with this uncle and she, you know, got busy with life and hadn't talked to him in a while. And then he goes and dies. And she took over his record store because they have this kind of relationship that she loved music as much as he did, even though she kind of put it on the back burner. Of course, he would leave the record store to her. And then when she moves back to Chicago, it's like, I have this awesome record store, but I kind of feel like I didn't do anything to to help build it. Why is it mine? And she kind of deals with that, I think, in an honest way that, yeah, we could all say, yeah, great. I just inherited a million dollars. I'm going to go to Europe. I'm going to go buy a Ferrari. But then... I think some of us would say, well, this isn't mine. I think there's two things like a marriage psychologist. So then some people would say like, and I have a cousin who did this, you inherit money and then you go blow it all because you feel bad that you inherited the money or you maybe you don't know how to deal with it. And there is a guilt factor to it. So, yeah, I mean, a little thing like a record store can be, you know, some people would love that job and others would not know what to do with it or screw it up. And she just takes it in stride and says, you know, I'm going to experience this. I need something to do. And I love music. So let me get reacquainted with my music. And then it's sort of, you know, other questions and thoughts start knocking on the door of her, her psyche. And uh, that's sort of where this time travel opportunity comes up. And, you know, it's a great thing about writing is that when you're writing these, these stories, especially for me, when I create characters for authors, it's the idea of like, when I'm creating their backstory, mm-hmm. it's like, one of those things that you're really just writing whatever just the flow comes out and you just write it Mm -hmm. and then you may come back later on and just edit it a little bit more make it sound better Mm -hmm. you know change it a little bit but in the end it's still organic and it still builds up and the other thing that i really thought was interesting that you said was that she started to try to work on certain things that to change but yet it didn't work out. And now she's just going and enjoying the life that she, she enjoyed when she was younger and just really having that capability of, 
another chance at finding herself again and just rediscovering, you know, the little things that made her happy, you know, and that's one of the things that I really wanted to bring in about the other supporting characters brought into the game itself too. They were able to really make her feel in the record shop itself like, yeah, this is something that's great. You found this old ticket stub, you got this poster, and makes her feel pride that she was there when this band was just in a little bar playing. But yet when they got bigger and better, she could have been one of those that, hey, I just found the next great band, but she didn't turn it in. She never yeah. said anything. And I think being a part of that was one of her things she wanted to go back and change because of the idea of like, I, I could have been a part of something. I wonder what it could have been like if I did that. But one of the things I really wanted to go back to is that when she was creating this list of goals and everything that she did from when she was back in her twenties, I, I was really interested in, in looking back at, okay, if she loved music so much, yeah. why didn't she stick with that? Why did she go with the, the money and everything? So my question to you is what made her change her career past the first time? Well, I guess in trying to make the story relatable, Okay, so I love this. Either either I'm disciplined enough to spend five years writing this book because I'm amazing, or I just I think the real answer is I really love the subject. And you know, within the first eight months of writing this thing, I'm like, Jesus, how do I come up with a hundred thousand words or something like that to finish this book? I kept making these little discoveries, like, oh, this is the reason that you know, I wanted to talk about this theme, or I wanted her to to experience this. This is the reason it happened. Like, I I. I when it's coming with her, her personality, you come up with, like, I think you know this as a writer, you come up with personality ticks and either quirks and either you turn the volume up on them or you just kind of leave them in the background. They're not necessarily important to the story and you got to be disciplined as a writer to kind of let things fly. For whatever reason, I came up with the, the idea that she hated the holidays and some of it has to do with her backstory is like her family of origin. You know, like her mom left when she was young. Her, you know, her, her older brother was a couple years old and her two things like died in a car crash. And her, her taste in music is informed by that. I used to live with a guy my freshman year in college who, you know, he was from like a rich area of the country. He was definitely not a deadhead and Bob Marley fan. So I think like, I'm thinking of like, why do you, why would a person like you like Bob Marley? And he's like, well, my older brother died in a car crash and, and, uh, you know, uh, he left all these records behind. I, uh, he didn't say this, but he was like, I think he, basically his way of grieving was to kind of dive, dive into his older, older brother's records. So later, like late, like towards the end of my, I'm a sixth draft. I'm like, God, that's it. Like, I can't just be her. I didn't want her. My friend Kevin Smokler, who's an author who writes about the 80s, writes about, he's got a book called Brack Back America. He kind of cautioned me early on. And I knew that I wasn't going to do this, but he cautioned me. He's like, don't make all the women in your book just cool because they like music that guys like. And I'm like, check. I think I got it. But eventually down the road, I wanted, you know, why does she like Nikki and the Corvettes and, you know, arcane groups like that that you may or may not heard of? Or why does she love post-punk like the first couple police albums and you know related to that then she likes bands from the 90s like l7 and slater kinney and there has to be some reason for that that's not just like oh cool you know like it was the cool music of my time i decided you know there's a little bit more intention there so that was one of the things that that came up that sort of informed who the character was and then uh, things unfold from that and as a writer you always got to pare it down you could tell all these great side stories and you know, like entertain the hell out of yourself. 
Mm. I think it's just a character. Just you know, it's there's reasons that people do things in life that we, you know, we all can understand them. But we find unexplainable. So I wanted one of the things in this book, themes in this book, to kind of also answer your question from another side is that the grass is greener mentality is kind of a theme here. Yeah. You know, when she was living in the nineties and she was a kind of a minor music critic at this little city paper called city scene, it was going okay. But I think a lot of us in her twenties, you know, like, well, I'm not making that much money. Is this really what I should do? And then, Oh, I, I broke up with somebody. I gotta, I gotta get myself, I gotta get my shit together and do something else. We all have sort of been through that psychologically. if If it hasn't necessarily spurred, changes that we moved to another city so i mean later in the in in the book she does remind herself that like every time one of my relationships goes awry i move across a couple state lines is that weird and that's something that i think a lot of people have done i've never done it but so i i I just wanted it to be like a relatable real story i I think some of the feedback i got from literary agents is i love your theme i love the 90s thing but i can't associate with the character because they're too they don't seem real enough to me. So yeah. then you smoke a little bit and you're like, oh, you know, I'm never going to get this thing published. And, you know, you just kind of eventually deal with it and be like, I- I'm dedicated to the story. Now I just got to kind of do a better job of explaining the character's position. And also some of the, you know, some of the people were along for the, the ride with her, that there are real reasons that people do things or make life changes that don't necessarily seem logical or make sense. And we can, you know, you call my character on be uh, on this story and be like, well, this is a time travel story. Of course, she would go back in time and with a winning lottery ticket and become a bazillionaire. But her life was a lottery when she was, you know, high flying on Wall Street and trading stocks and making a lot of money. And a lot of times in the lottery, you're, you got the losing ticket. That's kind of the majority of it. So, uh, yeah, I, I, we can go. I could write a dissertation on why she does all the things she does and doesn't do and why she made these decisions. I think I, I, I didn't. I think the narrator who's kind of a little bit of a biased narrator. He, he kind of, I always love the idea in writing before I go on too long of the unreliable narrator. I kind of took a different spin on that. The reliable, that my narrator kind of has some certain opinions about music that you may or may not like. And is you know, definitely thinks that, you know, there are certain things that are better than, than other things in music. And I kind of let he or him or her sort of run with it. And there's some, a couple of books I've read that, that where that's, that's implied and it's just sort of under the radar. Some people pick up on it, some don't, but sort of helps, you know, let Darby be without sort of overanalyzing her, you know, from a, I guess, a therapist point of view, which we all do, by the way, but you know, that there's all these things I think, I think are very nineties and generational generation X things. I just kind of set in motion. I kind of want the person to be who she is and, you know, you can judge the choices, but I don't. I think they all sort of make sense in a real world sort of way. And, and you know, I was, I was looking at that because you know, like her, you know, you said that you know we listen to music because it's not just because you know of a boyfriend liked it, a girlfriend liked it, mm-hmm. or you know I was forced into it because it was most popular at that time there's always a real true meaning when it comes to music. And that's one of the things I really enjoy about this too, especially with this conversation is you're really telling us like, no, there is a specific reason why she loves these bands. Yeah, It's, it's not because they were popular because again, many of them when she first saw them were no names. Yeah. And she just loved their music period because it, it 
spoke to them. And that's one of the great things about music that everybody can connect with. It connects with us on some it hits our soul in some way, shape, or form. And I also love that you actually have a disclaimer at the beginning of your book before you even get into anything about the story. And I'll read, I'll read some of these things. It says, the characters depicted in the story are purely fictional ones, and they are not based on humans living or dead in either the past, present, or future. Moreover, the attitudes and opinions within this text, political, musical-related, or otherwise, are exclusively those of the characters and not necessarily the author. That said, if any of the characters dissed your favorite musical subgenre or any band of which you are a member, we can have a word with them. Just meet me down at the Gray Line Tunnel. Yeah. I love that because it's something absolutely different than anything else out there. Because you're really pushing it to the point of like, these are not just my opinions. These are the characters' opinions. And if you want to have a have a talk, we can go down to the gray line and we can have a conversation. So you're you're not only bringing yourself in as the author slash narrator at some point, you're literally bringing the reader into the story and saying, hey, you got a problem with him? We can go down the gray line. You can yeah. have a conversation with him at that point. But, you know, the other thing I really liked was you really had a way of putting specific word or phrase into every chapter first chapter was sell out mm -hmm. and that was you know really the basis of that one and you know her going from all these things in new york now going directly into chicago nothing to her name running just like you said but it was the third chapter i believe it was that was called maladjustment yeah and at first i was looking at it, I was like why would you call this a maladjustment? She's doing fine. Yeah. She's adjusting to everything. And, you know, after a while, I was like, oh, no. She slumped emotionally in the, in the moments after Tam left. By the way, Tam is one of her old friends that she is catching up with at a bar. Mm -hmm. And then you also said she hoped Tam wouldn't be one of those friends who are too busy like she once was. And you, you stated this earlier when you were talking about her uncle and them having this connection and her not really talking to him as much as she should have or yeah. she wanted to. Are we seeing signs of her feeling abandoned? And obviously you said guilty at yeah. one point, but what is she really feeling abandoned about from her past? Well, there's two things. So first, I know you're a jazz guy. You're maybe not as much of an indie rock guy as I am. Just a little, little spoiler or something for the the diehard music fans that actually, I made this decision early on, but I had to make sure it worked. Every chapter is named after a notable 90s album or song. So you, you probably got a you know, real big fish sell out. I, that, I changed the name of that chapter like 17 times. And once I kind of eventually pared it down by about 400 words and made it more readable. And yeah, yeah. Some of these things like she's feeling like, I, I guess I didn't even think about this, that there's some things where the name of the chapter is kind of what she's feeling. Like we all have albums and songs that are like, that's, that's my song because it happened, you know, or like, I remember I was in a, a bar one time to give you a side example, a sports bar. I was just, I think I was waiting for somebody and the bartender kept playing this, this song by like Limp Biscuit or something and he was kind of looking at the floor. He played it like three times. And I think Limp Biscuit is 
you know, maybe it rocks a little bit in the way that new kids on the, on the block can be fun if you're really drunk, but I think it's kind of terrible music. He kept playing this song that was kind of emotional. I don't know what the song was. It was like, I can tell this bartender just broke up with somebody or he's thinking about some girl that doesn't want anything to do with him. He keeps playing this song like three times in the bar. I wanted to be like, can I request that you not play the song, whatever it is. But I mean, I, I noticed, and then maybe I'm just reading what I want to read, but it's just, I, I kind of noticed somebody's having a moment with this song. So yeah, with Darby, it's, I, I kind of wanted all the songs to reflect, or sorry, all the chapters to reflect a notable album in like a legitimate way. So side note, there's a, a chapter where, Darby's talking about, the narrator's talking about that Darby has this relationship that's kind of waned and the sparkle has gone away. So the name of that chapter is called Sparkle and Fade, like the, the Everclear album from 97 or whatever it was. I'm not a huge Everclear fan. I just, I, mean, I think I made it Sparkle Plus Fade, not Sparkle Land Fade. But yeah, the, but, but come to think of it, there's there's emotions. I try to have her be like, you know, she's not me, but I know, I know people in my generation who like, I think the way the generation X is different than millennials is that we were kind of told, told like, if you're upset about, you know, something losing the baby, like don't lose your, your, your stuff in the middle of, you know, deal with your emotions. Like my parents' generation is brushed under the rug. Us was like, handle it. Millennials is like, you know, I'm, I'm joking a little bit here, but so don't anybody like stalk me outside my house, but millennials kind of like, look, look, I'm going to put this on Facebook and complain about it and be a victim a little bit. And I think the generation Z is a little bit like, yeah, I could do that, but it's, I got more fun things to do than, than, you know, share overshare on Facebook or whatever. So we all have our ways. We all have emotions, whether we deny them or not. Darby's kind of dealing with this. I, you know, I never read, I read a little bit of DeShiel Hammett's, uh, you know, hardboiled detective novel, novels, and I'm not a super fan of that. But the, so the thing about the hard-boiled detective story is that they have these emotions and you're, he's not really going to share them with you, but they sort of inform his decisions. I mean, most of the most of the detectives are men because of when they're written, but it informed their decisions and their mindset on thinking out what the criminal is going to do next. And they're going to go, you know, that was, I think, a generational way of handling the emotion of a detective being disgusted by a murder and seeing a body or whatever awful stuff that they had. So generationally, I think we, Generation X, and I'm, you know, I was born in 72. So those of us who are born in the 70s are a little bit different than people who were born in 65 to 70. Again, not trying to be a professor here. But we all have different ways that we take our emotions and we deal with them through music or through, you know, creative pursuits. And so Darby is, yeah, I, get, I guess there's a guilt thing that she's dealing with, just kind of like she's back in town, loving it. Why did I not, why did I keep in touch with these people? And she's saying to herself, yeah, I, my, my job was kind of crappy. I broke up with this, this girl. But that, there was really no reason for me to kind of blow off my best friends, even though there are subplots where her best friends kind of, she thought, blew her off. So I think, yeah, there's, I, I don't try to name the emotion necessarily with the beginning of the chapter, but it did sort of work out that way. I did want, I didn't want to just name a chapter, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, because that was at night. Because I don't know that I could reproduce whatever those feelings are or drug-induced moments that, you know, informed them. I didn't have any characters that were as wild as Flea and Anthony Kiedis, but I did want there to be a strong music connection. And I think I achieved that and made it, I think I made that piece of it work. But yeah, I mean, every, I, I well, let me ask you, like when you read books, mm -hmm. I'm the kind of person that I want chapters to be seven, eight, 12 pages, not, if it's 45 pages, I'm, I'm going to probably not finish that book just as I'm a lazy reader. I felt like that was the way that Darby, either the way I tell a story because that's how I read the book, or Darby deals with these emotions in little blocks and then she puts them away. But I mean, I'm not, I'm not everybody. So 
like what the, the stuff that you read and write are you you know I, i'm curious to know like are you wired that way or I'm, I'm guessing maybe you are or you aren't i don't know i am definitely i'm like you it, it it comes down to for me chapters should be expressed like scenes in a movie yeah you know if you're changing the scenery then you need to change the chapter or name it a certain way. So it, it's, it makes it a lot easier for people to transition in their minds. I know it's not like the literary way of doing things, but we've also noticed that our literary, what's the word I want to say? Yeah. The educated of us all in writing are starting to do certain things like that too. You know, even the big names like Patterson and and King, you know, they're creating these books, especially King, because, you know, Stephen King has created so many books that went to movie, too, that it's almost like he's transitioning into, OK, I'm going to take my book and I'm going to create it just like it's a movie. And majority of the time, that's the reason why people love his book so much. Yeah. That and he's kind of creepy too. But drama too. he does. He does have a great sense of drama. And that's what people love. And that's what people really are trying to get out of these books. And like you said, if you have, you know, a, a chapter that's 45 pages long, I mean, you're going to lose people pretty yeah. quickly. And so. my personal opinion, mm -hmm. I have to put that in there as a disclaimer too. But here's, here's one of the things that really thought was interesting when you said that about the bartender with Limp Biscuit and, you know, him getting lost in the music and yeah. playing it over and over again, because, you know, again, probably lost, he got Don't. broke up with a girl or something. Yeah. yeah. My wife was showing me last night, a documentary that was on Woodstock in 99. Oh yeah. That uh, keeps popping up. I keep seeing it on Netflix or Hulu maybe or whatever. Yeah. It was on Netflix, but the idea was that I I remember her showing me specifically the Limp Biscuit part yeah. when he starts singing about break stuff. Yeah. And the way that he built it up was to a point where it was like one guy put it as like, here's the match. Here's the gas. Boom. That's exactly what happened because they were playing a song that people were feeling at that point. Yeah. And when he told them just to lose it, yeah, they did. And a lot of people got hurt. A lot of destruction happened and everything. It was just a crazy point. And when he came off, I remember the, the gentleman from MTV that was interviewing real quick. He said, you know, do you think that was a good choice of a song and everything? He's like, hey, I did what I thought was good. You know, we were feeling it. That's what everybody was feeling. This is not my fault. Well, they're not going to not play that song. That's like asking Oasis not to play Wonderwall. Okay. So exactly. When exactly. you're running a, a side note, just I, I don't even know if I'm going to play. It's like, I guess this was our generation's Firefest, a little bit more your generation, because I wasn't going to go to Woodstock 99. Um, <laughs> selling was bottles of water for $15 and there's no food and it costs whatever. I don't know, I'm sure it costs like 125 bucks just to enter. And that's in 1999 dollars. That, yeah, you, you know, you're taking advantage of people. Okay, maybe they're spoiled kids from the suburbs that have money who don't really you decide they don't even care about the music. Yeah, it's it, it's a little too sunny and hot, and there's not enough water, and the bathrooms are overflowing. People are gonna get pissed off. Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, I went to the Spoken Grooves tour, I think, in '98 when like it was the, the International Amphitheater in Chicago has been long since torn down. It was a terrible facility. 
I went, I went into the bathroom and literally there's water all over the floor and they're selling warm soda for $6. And, you know, the Fuji's are, are there without Lauren Hill, but they had a white tiger for some reason. They get the tiger, but not Lauren. I guess Lauren Hill is probably, you know, pretty pregnant or just had her kid. You know, when Public Enemy came out, Flavor Flav is, is I think the one time Flavor Flav was like really drunk and not. Yeah. And Professor Griff was out there with him and looking at him like, I'm going to kick your ass if you don't stay on the stage. There was definitely tension there. So I feel like, yeah, there was a span of time where like we got the sort of, not to get off on a tangent, but we took the, the alternative punk indie thing and sort of commoditized it. And after a while, people were like, nah, you know, you do this and you charge me 15 bucks for a bottle of water. Not yeah. Time, right? yeah. And then you also put a band like Limp Biscuit on stage. I don't know what you expect is going to happen, I guess. Yeah, that's true. That really is. And, you know, with this, you know, I think it's hilarious is that even when we're talking about music, many people are probably going to look like, well, you're not talking about the book. No, no, we're talking about the book as well, because there is so much of, I'm, I'm sorry, like I said earlier, this guy is a, is literally a walking rock log. Mm-hmm. And yes, you. Yeah, okay. And for people... <laughs> Yes, you, I'm talking about you. But it it is that idea because when you're looking at the book, there is so much music involved. It's literally one of the most important ingredients of the entire book. And when I'm also looking at that, I'm also going to ask you this specifically because I think it would be interesting to get your insight on it. If the rock log really existed and this is just a a catalog of all the concerts that have ever been what concerts would you love to see in it yeah so i created this this element of the story i'm really into the side note i love pulp fiction i love movies and books that have MacGuffins. like a MacGuffin is something if someone doesn't know what it means it's an object in the story that that sort of in in it causes you may not know what it is necessarily, but it it changes the trajectory of the plot. So, because I was so in depth with this music thing, you know, there was I I, I don't remember where the idea came up, but I, I guess as a MacGuffin, I wanted to have something that, that had like a list of every concert, so that you know, think about like in Back to the Future too. There's I think Marty McFly finds you know, like the whatever the, the sports log or the old magazine that is the reason that, that Biff comes back and is able to win all this money because he's betting on sports things. I don't yeah, want it was, it was the sports almanac is what it yeah. was. So, but I mean, I've had things where it's like a, a rock and roll almanac and I just sort of made up this thing that's like, yeah, the, the rock log whose, whose name is the Chicago rock catalog that some, you know, music geek put together. It has listed every Johnny concert. concert. Johnny concerts is, 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 is yeah, this, we don't know what his real name is. It yeah. But he's put together this book that has every concert since I think 1978 up to when they when it's out of print and right about when the story starts. That yeah, there's a lot of concerts there. You could take the book with you. I I, I guess I made it about a Bible size book. I don't know if that, that would be big enough. But you know, when mm-hmm. some of us actually like you know when we were in the 90s and we have these habits now, or like we still write stuff down on paper. I still make you know like my wife and kid use this grocery app, and I just kind of want to have a piece of paper to write like the 18 things that I need. Especially when you go to like Trader Joe's where there's like the one aisle that has only this yeah. the produce aisle. I kind of want to have it like when I'm in that aisle, I got to pick up this stuff because I don't want to have to go be like, oh, lemons is the bottom of the list. Now I got to go back to that. So I have this list making capacity and it was kind of, I, I don't know, I may think maybe it's a generational thing <clears throat> before 
information technology existed the way it does. It also in high fidelity, like the guys yeah. in the record shop make these top five thing, top five lists. Yeah, I think like if you were gonna, I just naturally I thought if I'm gonna go back in time and it's a serious opportunity. Yeah, I could just jump in the, the telephone booth or whatever or jump on the gray line. But I, I probably want to prepare mentally a little bit. I'm going to get my nerve up and contemplate it. And that's just sort of what Darby does. She goes through this book called The Rock Log that, you know, she and Spacey, her, record, her favorite record store employee, know about. They don't let the, the, the guys in the store know about it because they think yeah. they're going to lose the book. And they take these turns kind of being like, well, I would go see Billy Idol at, at this date. Or I would go see the Ramones, the Runaways. Or I'd see, uh, what the hell, I'd go see, you know. Falco when he was in town or, you know, whatever it is, you know, Liz fair actually will come to town. She'll play this little place called the empty bottle. And of course the empty bottle is a tiny venue. Liz fair will play because, you know, she knows that she'll get a crowd and it'll sell out in two minutes. But I've had a friend one time call me from standing outside the empty bottle one night. He's like, do you want to see the Japan droids tonight? I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. Oh, can you grab me a ticket? He's like, no, I'm in line right now. The first 300 people get in. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm not going then because I can't get there right now. We, you know, these, we, we make these little lists and we make these little goals. And I think about like, you know, I'm going to go to see my best friend in Seattle. And I've been to Jimi Hendrix's gravesite. And someone just told me about the Museum of Pop. So that's like on my list of things to do. So I don't know. I think making lists is a, is a natural thing. If you have this great resource of, uh, you know, and sports fans do it too. Like what are, what are the, what's your best sports? You know, if you're top five, if you're a Broncos fan, what's your top five Broncos moments? I don't know. I think that's kind of a natural thing to do. So I felt like it, it, it necessitated a repository of concert information that you could believe actually exists. And it's just, you know, a cool book that like a coffee table book, you and I would spend time going through it just because it's one of those, you know, we have books in our lives. It's like, well, I could read this thing for four hours, you know, even though it's just information. Uh, that's That was the purpose of that. And I think it does. It, it's instrumental in the story, but I didn't want to rely on it too much. It just kind of lets her come up with, I'm going back to Chicago in the 90s or even just whenever. Here's a list of like the 10 concerts I would go to. And she has the list with her when she goes back. So then she remembers like that Nirvana plays this date. So maybe since I'm back in time and I have this tra time travel train, maybe I'll go back to 91 when Nirvana played their first show 33 days after Smells Like Teen Spirit was released to the world. And I'm going to do a vintage concert review for my, you know, my job I got back at the, at the city paper. I just thought that would be kind of a fun dynamic. So yeah, you got to have, have some list and some you know, index cards with you to pull that off, I guess. So are, are the bands that are actually in the book part of your list? Some are. I mean, it's funny because I have tickets to see L7 for the third time in October. I've seen them twice, twice right before the pandemic kind of shut things down. And I had never seen them in the 90s because like I. So here's the thing, the fun thing about time travel. And so a major theme of the book probably is the golden age thinking, which I think Woody Allen addressed in Midnight in Paris, that we always think about the past is like, oh, we great to go back to whatever time in, in my life where this was happy. I didn't have these problems. But you know, at the same time, I'm 22, like I couldn't afford to go see my favorite bands a lot of time. Or if I did, you know, that was going to, I would have to put on my credit card. And also I was eating ramen noodles and quesadillas every night for dinner, trying to make my rent in Chicago because I sure as hell wasn't going to move back to the suburbs with my tail between my legs. And I wasn't going to move to the suburbs of Chicago or, you know, that we forget those little things. Like I had to take my laundry down three flights of stairs and wash in this crappy 
washing machine that didn't really work that well. And, oh, I had to put quarters in it. And sometimes the quarters would not, it wouldn't work. And I was SOL Sunday night. So we forget about those things when we're thinking about going back to the past. So, yeah, I think about like, I remember, I think it was when the House of Blues opened that their first act was James Brown. Like the House of Blues in Chicago opened up, I want to say around New Year's Day. And literally like the first act was James Brown when he was still alive. Of course, I would go back to that because I never saw him alive. I didn't have the money. And I probably, you know, it was like getting Bulls tickets back then. You'd call the line and they'd be like, oh, you want to be on the waiting list? It's 20,000 people. That's what the Bulls waiting list was even after Michael Jordan left. So, yeah, there'd be definitely some concerts, but there's probably 80, 50, 100 others that I could spend all day listing. But you know, some of the ones like I, I do love the idea of seeing Nirvana smashing pumpkins in a small club like Lounge Axe or Empty Bottle, wherever they played with, you know, 10 or 12 other people. And that sort of informs, you know, the the only bands that they actually go to see when you're reading the book and they're seeing a band on stage is that I made up all those bands just because I don't want to have to do likeness rights or piss anybody off. So that kind of informed the decision to make up this band called Dreaded Letters that Darby once saw. She liked them. She's her favorite band. And she kind of was the one of the first people to discover them. But, you know, she was writing for City Scene at the time and never never wrote about them and you know doesn't really feel bad about that until her record store employee Spacey says like I think you discovered Dreaded Letters I think you were like one of the first people to ever see them why didn't you write about them so we all have those bands those acts you know we'd all like I, I got to see Carrie Wood's final pitch when when the cut when he was on the, on the Cubs I want to say this is probably 2012 I just happened to be there I mean it was not a remarkable game but it makes me think I would have loved to be in that game when he threw 20 strikeouts as a rookie same thing, I think. You know, whether you're into music, sports, knitting, you know, opera, we all have those moments that we feel like we need to write down and go back and attend. Yeah, I think that's a great place to end this. So what I'm going to ask you right now are obviously Marcella's questions and all those that really enjoy just hearing these these answers. So the first question is, what is your writing kryptonite? For me, I think it's being rushed and it, it didn't really rear its head when I was writing the book because I had forever to do that. But, you know, my other thing is I write for Forbes. I've written for you know ESPN and Rolling Stone. And it's not even the deadlines. It's like I I'm not good about writing this thing and publishing it like because a lot of times you self-publish or you, you hit publish yourself the publish button. I don't like being rushed because I make mistakes. So for me, when I'm, you know, being forced to kind of rush through things that actually slows me down. I'd rather, I'm not, I'm a pretty driven person. Maybe that's part of the problem. I have a sense of urgency about everything. And I know that I make mistakes and don't do my best work when I'm rushing myself or being rushed. And I think that's probably the thing. Kryptonite, I think slows Superman down. That never really kills him. So that would be it for me. You know, that's honestly the first one. That's the first time we've actually heard that, that answer. And uh, that's awesome. I really like that. Okay, second question. Is there a quote or a person in your life that inspires you to continue writing? I don't know. For me, it's kind of, it's always, it's something I need to do. Just like if you're really into golf, you need to play a couple times a week. I don't know if they're relatable, but I don't know. I think when I get down and, and think like, oh, I didn't get this thing published or this isn't going my way. I always like my friend Manny Amezqua, who I used to work for in the financial world, he has a podcast called At the Podium. You know, he's a CEO, he owns, he's a financial planner. He kind of talks to like really super motivated, you know, 
successful people in a, you know, kind of a career way. So we talked about my book, I guess about a month or month ago, because he was intrigued that I went from like sitting in a cubicle to finishing a book. Anyway, he always said, I think when, when we would complain about things not going our way or like an underwriter would put their foot down or like we lost a deal, it'd be like, could it be worse? Yes. And I always think about the fact that I get to do what I want to do and I don't, you know, it, my life is pretty well put together. I mean, I've worked on it. I think we all work on trying to make ourselves better. And so there's always a reason you could find to complain, you know, that I'm, I, I think that James Patterson is not really a great writer and he's super famous. Why can't, you know, I be mm-hmm. complaining doesn't really get you anywhere. So you got to think about, you know, could it be worse? Yes. So why don't you just be happy where you are and make the best of it? You know, things could always be worse. You could always not be someone who, who not be someone who gets to do what they love. That is true. That is very, very true. Okay. So final question. What's next? Well, really for the next you know, probably year and a half, I, I mean, I spent a lot enough time on this book, 90 days in the nineties that I want to promote it. You know, it, it's, I'm with a small publisher. So with that, there is a sense of entrepreneurship that you have to spend your own time and effort doing it. I kind of know that there's a certain type of reader who's who I mean I've, I've talked to and I've sold them the book who like they know what the title is know what's about they're going to buy it and it doesn't matter that's eighteen or twenty bucks that they're going to buy it just like the genre fiction lover is going to buy the next romance novel that he or she likes so yeah I'm talking to people who do podcasts and they don't you know they a lot of you are interested in music and pop culture and that's a big strong part of the book. I think kind of sells the story. So I just kind of want to talk about it and talk with people who love music and, you know, people are interested in the book. Obviously that's great. And then I have some story ideas down the road, maybe to make a Chicago trilogy. I've got an idea about a a baseball book that involves a a female character. Maybe she's the first ever pitcher that really makes it in the major league called a chip on both shoulders. And I've got an idea for a cop, a cop who has a desk job, gets her first detective role and goes undercover to, find out why the rocker Billy Shred died or maybe he was murdered and called uh, Dance at Your Own Risk. So we'll see if I follow this through. I got two good ideas, but I'm kind of, you know, not I'm not exhausted. I just want to have fun with this book and talk about it, promote it for a while. And we'll see. I'm going to start pulling the trigger on really you know, the next writing project at some point sooner than later. Man, I think those are awesome. Thank you for being on the show, Andy. Please tell us, one, where we can find 90 Days in the 90s, and two, any other events or anything that you're going to be a part of in the near future. Yeah, you go to 90daysinthe90s.com, use the numbers, not the words for 90, and if you want a signed copy and a little bit of swag, I'll send it to you. Otherwise, you can obviously get it on Amazon.com at you know, point and click. just depends on how you, if you, you know... If you want to be anonymous, go buy it on Amazon and they'll get it to you in a couple of days. I'm doing a couple of things. I've got some things in Chicago here, like art fair type things. And Chicago's Art Walk is coming up in, I think, September 10th. I'm going to be just kind of being there with my book. And if you want to buy a copy, if you're in Chicago, I'll be on the north end of the path. And in Milwaukee, a punk rock author, a friend of mine named Jeff Winkowski has a book called Time of Your Life. We're doing this little like thing in a bookstore called books not bombs it's basically the two of us I, I i made up the poster it's like an old punk show flyer that's in black and white with boot marks on it and it basically says like two old punks and authors talk about you know music of the 90s so i think yeah admissions free obviously it's a small bookstore called the lion's tooth we're hoping people will bring like a book that they don't want because the benefit it's for midwest books for prisoners 
or Midwest Books Two Prisoners, I think is what it's called, that we you know, compile some books that are good books that we can send to somebody who needs you know needs to read. And yeah, I mean that's very like punk street cred for me to do that. Show up at a little bookstore with this you know old guys talking about punk rock and whatnot. But you know that'd be a fun little fun little indie rock show gig for me, I guess. You know. All right, so since I'm the only one here, I guess you're just going to have to get my two cents instead of the $20 that Marcella tries to give you. So for me, I really love this book. It it is very easy to read. There are topics in it that really make you want to continue to really learn more about Darby, learn a little bit about Dell, Tam, and all the other great characters. I mean, there's so many things about this book that really make you want to continue to read it. And here's the other thing. Here's another reason why you want to get this book. And it is the KT's Kids Foundation. This is, excuse me, a portion of the proceeds from every sold copy of 90 Days in the 90s is donated to KT Kids, a Chicago-based nonprofit organization that plans and provides recreational events, field trips, and outings for Chicago children and teenagers with physical disabilities. So to be able to do this, go check out the organization at ktkids.com and go buy the book. Help donate to these kids, make a difference, and like I always say, keep writing, Keep inspiring and keep sharing as you go beyond the pen. Hey folks, that's a wrap for this episode of Beyond the Pen. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to stay connected and up to date with everything Beyond the Pen, follow us on Twitter at Beyond the Pen Pod and Instagram at Beyond the Pen Podcast. For even more content and exclusive access to our guest profiles and more, make sure to visit our website at beyondthepenpodcast.com. Don't forget to join our Facebook fan page to interact with our favorite authors and fellow fans of the show. And if you want to take your Beyond the Pen experience to the next level, check out our selection of video interviews on Traverse TV's video on demand and live stream. You can access these interviews through your Roku, Amazon Fire, Apple TV, Google Play, iTunes, or the Traverse TV app. So until next time, thanks again for tuning in and remember to keep writing inspiring and sharing as you go beyond the pen.